Welcome to The Water Course. I'm your host, Skylar Herzog. This is episode two, featuring Chelsea Panos from Colorado School of Mines. Chelsea is an expert on stormwater impacts of infill development. Infill development is when old neighborhoods made up of small, single-family homes with big yards get converted into high-density apartment units. Now, what's driving these changes, and what do they mean for stormwater management? To find out, I interviewed Chelsea in September 2019. As always, if you want a primer or refresher on stormwater or infill development, pause this podcast now and check out the pre-listening links in the description. In today's episode, Chelsea teaches me about how infill development affects stormwater runoff and what the city and developers can do to mitigate negative impacts. Welcome to the Water Course. I'm Skylar Herzog, and I'm interviewing Chelsea Panos, who is a PhD candidate here at Colorado School of Mines in Golden. This is where I did my PhD too, and a lot of fond memories. Um, Chelsea studies infill redevelopment and stormwater impacts. So, um, I want to ask Chelsea here about what is infill redevelopment, because I think a lot of us have in our mind this concept of uh, urbanization being expansion, urban sprawl from uh, what was a field or a forest becomes a neighborhood. And obviously when that happens, you have more roads and more roofs and more impervious surface, um, leading to more stormwater runoff. But what is infill redevelopment? How does that compare with the urban sprawl um, kind of conceptual model people have? Awesome, thanks Skylar. So infill development or redevelopment, I tend to say one or the other instead of infill redevelopment is the idea of redeveloping a previously developed area. So rather than expanding development into what we would consider urban sprawl, you are redeveloping an existing land use within a city. So the most common example is redeveloping a single family home into a multifamily unit. Okay, and what does that look like on the ground? Uh, Can you see these houses very clearly when you're walking through Yes, absolutely. Um, You can spot them out pretty easily as you're driving down the street. They tend to have a very different aesthetic from the houses that exist previously. You know, you can be in a fairly old neighborhood that has these cute, quaint single-family homes, and right next door will be a massive, very tall unit that takes up the entire parcel area. And for this reason, a lot of people really don't like infill development. So why is it happening, though? If if people don't like it, why do you get these kind of massive new units going up where there used to be a small family house? Right. Uh, The main reason is because of urban growth, and urban populations around the world are actually increasing, meaning that more and more people are moving from rural areas into cities, and they build a life there, they grow families. So the urban population itself is increasing, which means the cities have to find some place to house the people. And one of the best ways to do that is to become denser and add more development within the existing city. Okay, so instead of just sprawling outwards forever, some people either can't or they have urban growth boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, You either have to go up and build taller or bigger units, basically, right? Exactly. More people per square foot. Right, right. And the idea being denser areas, there are a lot of benefits. They can economically revitalize areas. It's great for public transportation, things like that. And just 
the idea of limiting urban sprawl, which itself has a lot of environmental impacts. Sure. Yeah, lots of social, environmental, mm-hmm. economic interests here. Uh, but you focus on the stormwater, mm-hmm. right? So what are the impacts of infill development? <laughs> Got that right terminology there. Uh, or redevelopment on stormwater. Right. So just like if you're converting farmland or a forest into a neighborhood, you're changing the land use, you're changing the land cover. The same thing is happening with infill development. You are removing front and back lawns from a single family home and replacing that with impervious or hard surfaces like parking lots, uh, roofs, driveways, things like that. And the more hard surfaces you have, the more water, rainwater you have hitting the ground and running off as stormwater rather than infiltrating or soaking into the ground. Yeah. Okay. And, and you work in the Berkeley neighborhood of Denver, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically. And you can see, you can walk through there and see these massive new, um, multi, oh, what do you call them? Multifamily homes or apartments. Mm-hmm. And they're up to three stories high and they literally go like sidewalk to sidewalk. They, they've developed to the absolute maximum size they can on that lot. Exactly. So you used to have this maybe 800 square foot home, maybe a thousand square feet home with a lot of lawn around it. Now the entire lot is just impervious. Right. So what have you found in terms of how that impacts the stormwater, quantity or quality or both? Right. So it can impact both. And so it can impact quantity by increasing it significantly, which can cause flooding issues. And then it can also impact quality because the more stormwater we have running off of streets and cities, it picks up all of the nasty stuff that's on the streets, like trash, bacteria, nutrients from fertilizers, which is really interesting, but my work focuses purely on the quantity side of okay. things. So and you're looking at the larger scale, right? You're not looking at an individual parcel. You're looking at right. the cumulative impact of, you know, these neighborhoods have sweeping changes. It's not just mm-hmm. one house here and there. It's, right. it's uh, the norm, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So, yeah, I've modeled the entire Berkeley neighborhood, looked at a bunch of different scenarios, including different storm sizes, so bigger storms that happen less frequently, smaller storms that happen more frequently, and the increases, what we found, are significant. So across different storm sizes, we're seeing increases of 1 to 20 acre feet, and acre feet is a strange term, so in other terms that is similar to one-half to ten Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water across a two-square-mile neighborhood. So I think looking at those numbers, you can start to imagine what the problem is in terms of flooding issues and things like that. And that's an interest to me. I do a lot of you know urban stream work, and uh, that extra water is going into the streams mm-hmm. and scouring and causing a lot of degradation. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's an impact for a lot of the ecosystems in the area. Okay, and you sent me an article from the New York Times from this past summer. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It talked about some of the causes and reactions to redevelopment. But it was, it was fascinating because it went through some of the, you know, the percentage of major cities that are single-family home. Mm-hmm. Like, they're zoned exclusively for single-family homes. And, uh, you know, it's often above 50% to 85%. But all these cities are, are changing their regulations to allow redevelopment right. for uh, some of the same kind of urban density um, as a solution to some of the population issues. Right. So this is a... Although you study just the Berkeley neighborhood in Denver, this is a kind of nationwide and even worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to? Can I ask you to kind of reflect on that article a little bit? So it, there was one part that I thought I liked. It said, in, "In Oregon, the joke goes, people hate sprawl and density." I would like, yeah, that's what I would talk about. 
it's really interesting. Um, I feel like people don't really know what they want uh, because they don't want either thing, right? So they really don't like the infill development and how it brings more people into the area. It's changing the way that their neighborhood looks. At the same time, those same people don't like urban sprawl. They don't like the environmental reasons for urban sprawl. And the thing is, growth is happening. It's still going to happen. And for growth to happen, you have to have one or the other. Yeah. You have to choose one. And people don't like to choose one. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and this, this article you sent talks about how uh, basically it's the American dream to have a single-family detached home. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that New York Times article kind of outlined, you know, Many cities have up to 85% or more zone, like of the air, land area zoned for that. And there's even some social justice implications where a lot of these people have, they already have nice homes in these suburban neighborhoods and they don't really want to accommodate more people. And um, there tends to be, uh, you know, racial uh, discrepancies between uh, who lives in, whether in, in single family homes versus more dense uh, apartments, complexes, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing is a lot of the focus of changing single-family zoning to multifamily is the idea of creating affordable housing units. Yeah. And you can only create those in multifamily units. You don't create single-family homes in, like, an affordable housing scheme. So I thought that that part was really interesting as well. Okay, moving back to stormwater, um, why... Like, as I understand it, these areas are already regulated for stormwater. This is within the city. There's already a plan for all this stuff. So why um, aren't those regulations adequate to protect and kind of manage the stormwater from redevelopment? Okay. So the current policy or regulations surrounding stormwater and redevelopment are really interesting because they do exist, but current regulations exempt or exclude parcels that are beneath or under a certain size threshold from doing anything basically to manage stormwater during a redevelopment project. And that threshold is typically a half an acre to an acre. So if you're a developer and you come in and you redevelop something that's less than either a half an acre or an acre and you're essentially disturbing land that's less than that amount, you don't have to worry about stormwater. Okay. But But you know that cumulatively these small changes add up. Absolutely. And the problem is that most of the parcels that this is happening on, in my specific study of Berkeley, 99% of the parcels are exempt from this current policy. So So there's basically no way for the regulations to accommodate this massive increase in impervious surface area. Exactly. All right. Well, what's next? Uh, What can we do about this? Well, luckily... Denver and other cities are recognizing that this is a problem. They're recognizing this, which is great. And they are looking at actually lowering those thresholds, those size thresholds. So say from half an acre to a quarter acre. And then they're also looking at what should be required at each threshold. So maybe less than a quarter acre, a developer should be required to put in some sort of stormwater control measure on their parcel. Like a rain rain garden or something like that. Right, or bioretention cell, something like that. Or maybe they should focus on minimizing what's called directly connected impervious surfaces. So the more connected an impervious surface is, so a sidewalk right next to a driveway, et cetera, the easier the path is for the stormwater to just flow straight off. So maybe they should focus on putting a grass strip in between. Yeah, this is like kind of uh, worst case scenario is a big roof 
that mm-hmm. has a gutter that drains directly onto the sidewalk that goes directly into the sewer. Right. So there's nowhere for that water to infiltrate at all. Anything that hits the roof goes straight into the sewer. Mm-hmm. And simply um, adding a little grass patch or something like that to have that water from the roof go onto the grass before the sewer right. can really cut down the amount of stormwater that gets generated. Right. So maybe that's something that could be required. So they are looking at currently, and that's part of my research. Part of my research is to inform these new decisions of what should the threshold be and what should be required at each threshold. Okay. I'm curious, uh, in terms of the modeling you're doing, what kind of things are you looking at? Are you looking at specific um, stormwater control measures, or are you looking at you know, ways you could actually model this uh, disconnected impervious surfaces, or how do you... How do you actually do that modeling? Right. So I'm modeling a couple of different scenarios. So one is what I would call a distributed scenario. And this is where each developer would be required to put some sort of stormwater control measure. I'm specifically looking at bioretention cells on the parcel that they are redeveloping. So every single parcel that's being redeveloped would have this. And I'm also looking at sizing those differently. And... It's interesting because the way I'm looking at it is sizing it to a percentage of the parcel area. So 1%, 2%, 5%, and 10% of the parcel area. And this might not make the most sense uh, research-wise or scientifically, but I'm doing it because it's a way that developers could really easily understand what the requirement is. Okay. So, okay, you're required to put in a bioretention cell that's 2% of the parcel surface area and they understand what that means. So they know what they're getting into, Mm because they care about probably how much square footage they ultimately get to develop. And so they can understand from the beginning, it's 1%, it's 2%. Um, I'm sure the volume comes into play too, Mm -hmm. but but that's something they can really get their minds around quickly. Right, right. So there would be other requirements, of course, like it would have to have this type of media and things like that, but exactly, it's the surface area that they care about. How much can they develop? So that's one situation I'm looking at. And then another idea is this centralized scheme. So instead of each developer having to put in something on their parcel, the developer could pay a fee into a more centralized, larger, regional stormwater control measure that would be on like a big lot. So say in a park, or if you're looking at things like previous pavements, the parking lot of a school that's in the neighborhood, things like that. So the developer would pay towards that facility being built and maintained. And then the, the city or someone can manage this more centralized facility mm-hmm. there. Didn't you even look at uh, maybe having a golf course accommodate some of that water? Yeah. There's always I'm always fascinated by these really interesting, you know, site-specific projects. You can't necessarily plan this in advance, but I thought it was really cool in the Berkeley neighborhood there is a golf course that's publicly owned Mm -hmm. and they don't have any water features on the golf course. And so they actually thought about incorporating stormwater treatment into a new renovation that features like, you know, streams and ponds and water hazards for the golf course that could do both that and stormwater treatment. Yeah, absolutely. That could be a good example of a centralized option where that stormwater from each of these redeveloped parcels gets routed to there and gets treated and, and buffered Mm-hmm. there and stored on site rather than having each individual parcel um, have uh, bioretention. Right, right. Berkeley, yeah, it's a really interesting and unique opportunity and we should always be taking advantage of those. Is there, what, what has been the pushback to to that? Like, have you seen, like, either people more in favor of on-site or distributed? Um, sorry, on-site or centralized? On-site or centralized, yeah. 
the pushback in general from developers is just this idea of being required to do something. It's just one more thing in the planning stage of it. Um, it takes it does take up surface area of the lot, and they truly are developing to the edge. There's nothing left. Um, so I think that's that's the main pushback. Okay. I did see another article you sent talked about how Denver's changing the policies because a lot of the residents do hate these these projects, and they're at least making the developers have the apartment face the street. Yes. Right, because a lot of them are facing, they're literally a sidewalk to sidewalk, and all the doors are on an alley. Yes, facing but, towards each other. Yeah, so adjacent lots, mm-hmm. they'll go wall to wall on, basically, and then have really ugly street views. Yeah. So there's a chance with some of these updates, and, and as cities are learning how to deal with these uh this issue of redevelopment, how to do it sustainably and do it in a way that the residents can get behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they can also incorporate some of these bioretention or other stormwater management techniques right. there. Right, right. Um, what I like about your work, too, is that you are working with the city and with developers and talking with them to understand how it can be as painless as possible. Mm-hmm. Because I think you recognize things won't get done if you have to fight uphill the entire way. Exactly. So looking for ways to make it as painless as possible, but still deliver you know, stormwater treatment and quantity mm-hmm. management. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, how is the city reacting to this problem? And have you talked with those officials at all about anything? So I haven't gotten to talk to them yet about the most recent updates in my research. But what I'm finding is that implementing stormwater control measures through the redevelopment process could actually be really exciting and a really cool opportunity for the city because you can implement them as a retrofit through the process of redevelopment that's already occurring. Okay, so that is they're already breaking ground on some of these projects. It's easier to go back and add stormwater treatment there, uh, given it's already a construction site. Right. Rather than coming in and saying to you know an old neighborhood, we're going to try to really mess things up and, and do a lot of construction and add Absolutely. stormwater treatment. Absolutely. So you're already... Yeah, developing this whole parcel, it's all torn up, it's under construction. In that moment, you can just put in some new stormwater control, which is awesome for the city. The other thing that we're finding is these types of small decentralized units could have the potential to be really, really effective and efficient, meaning they're going to take up a really small percentage of the surface area of the neighborhood. You know, we're looking at 1% to 2% of a redeveloped parcel but yet still be really effective at yeah, reducing stormwater. It strikes me that these neighborhoods were probably built, you know, 50-plus years ago. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really any attention paid to stormwater mm-hmm. as a water quality or really a, um, as a water quality issue. Uh, the technologies were non-existent right. or really old, so the city might see this as a chance to uh, update the stormwater management to something that's more modern and Right, revamping it. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, what's next for you in your research? Um, what kind of issues are you thinking about moving forward? Climate change. Climate change. All right. How so? So climate change and stormwater, to me, is really interesting because stormwater systems, storm sewers in this country were built a century ago, and they were built based on the idea of extreme events, so extreme storm events. So they were built to handle a certain size storm. But those storms were determined based on historical data from the early 20th century. So looking at a bunch of climate data that had occurred, 
what storm should we size our sewer for? Now that climate has been changing and it's continuing to change, those storms aren't the same size anymore. Yeah, so, so what happens if the sewer that was built for a two-inch storm suddenly gets 50% more or, exactly. or so? Okay. Exactly. So they're undersized now is what's the problem and going to be more so in the future. So what I'm looking to do is essentially add climate change to the same model that I've been using this whole time to model stormwater and see how does that impact the story. And my guess, or my hypothesis, is we're seeing that these stormwater controls can potentially handle increases from the infill development alone. That's possible it can happen. What I'm thinking is you throw climate change into the mix and they're no longer going to be able to do that. Yeah. So, and how do you model climate change? Are you uh, taking historic data and multiplying it by a certain factor to see how it performs? Are you taking climate projections? or What kind of approach do you think you'll uh, use? A mix of both. So when we're modeling individual storms, we're essentially going to double the frequency of storm events. So a 10-year storm becomes a 5-year storm. What used to be a storm that is the biggest storm every 10 years will now be occurring every 5 years. Right, because the idea is a whole... Storm sewer design and urban drainage design, storm sewers in the U.S. at least, are built upon the idea of the five-year or the ten-year storm. They're okay. designed to handle the five-year or the ten-year storm. So the idea is, what if those change? Okay. What's the other strategy, out of curiosity? Just um, looking, at, looking at climate models. Um, so for... Because we're going to model individual storms but then also model some long-term simulations, and for that, looking at climate models and downscaling climate okay. models. Cool. Yeah. All right, Chelsea, so what's next with you? You're finishing up your PhD in, a, in the near term. I won't ask exactly when. I know how that goes. <laughs> but what's, what's following on this for you? I would love to teach in the future. So teaching is really my passion, so I would love to have a teaching position, and I can take what I have learned from my research and learned about urban water, which is really one of the big challenges of the future, and guide students towards solving that problem. Awesome. Well, I'll link uh, your paper you have published already and any uh, upcoming work in this in this podcast, uh, but how can people get in contact with you if they are interested in what they heard today and want to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. People can definitely email me at cpanos at minds.edu. It's M-I-N-E-S for minds. Yes. Um, you can also feel free to follow me on Twitter. I use Twitter exclusively for academic and research purposes, and I am at Chelsea underscore Panos. Great. Thanks so much for your time, and I hope it's really interesting to people. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Water Course. First off, a big congratulations to Dr. Chelsea Panos, who has now graduated and is a teaching professor in civil and environmental engineering at Colorado School of Mines. If you want to learn more about infill and stormwater, reach out to her directly through the uh, Twitter link in the description of the episode, or check out the post-listening resources also in the episode description. The first is a free open access article about how vacant lots impact stormwater. And the other is about green stormwater infrastructure and climate change. Now, the second article is not free, but remember that you can always email the author to ask for a copy for your personal use. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and tell a friend. 
Also remember that suggestions for future episode topics are always welcome. You can reach out to me on Twitter at watercoursepod and by email via watercoursepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Skylar Herzog.